joining us here in worship. If you're here in person, thank you. I see a lot of people that I haven't seen in over a year, so welcome back. And for those of you that are joining us for the first time, not returning from COVID, but you've just, you're visiting today, thank you for joining us. For those of you that are online, also we want to thank you. For those of you that are online, at the end of the service here in person, we are actually going to go through communion. So if you are at home in your pajamas with a cup of coffee, you can go to the cupboard and get some bread and some form of juice, and you can join us at the end of the service and go through communion as well. A couple things I want to uh, draw to your attention before we get into the sermon. Uh, You'll notice that we have our Uh, Grace Insider, that's our monthly magazine for the month of May, and I want to encourage you to pick one of those up, and specifically, I want you to to read about some of our missionaries. Now, these are pseudonyms, these are not their their real names, the Sheldons and the McIntyres, they're both in a part of the world where it is dangerous for their names to be online and recognized. So we use pseudonyms. And one of those couples, one of those missionary couples, we refer to them as field staff, they are coming out of sabbatical, a time of rest. And another couple is going into sabbatical for a time of rest. Now, why did they do that? Why is this rest necessary? Well, we are all required, required, uh, admonished to take a Sabbath rest one day a week. And for an extended period of time of service in the Lord, especially in areas where they don't receive the kind of fellowship that we have and mutual encouragement because there's such a minority in, in these cultures, it can become very wearisome to serve the Lord year in and year out in a place where it is dangerous to be a Christian. So they need to be refreshed. They need to be renewed and they need to receive rest in the Lord. So uh, encourage them this morning together as we lift the McIntyres and the Sheldons up in prayer. Now, regarding prayer, I want to encourage you, you're here at the second service. Following this, at the 11 o'clock service, in room 306, there will be people that will be gathered together to pray specifically for our field staff. So if you don't have things to do immediately right after the service, I want to encourage you to join a group of people in prayer over them. But let's take some moment, right, a moment right now and lift up the McIntyres and the Sheldons. Father, we lift them up, Lord, two precious couples that love you dearly. And they want to see the people that, uh, that you've placed them in the midst of to come to know you. And Lord, they're both tired. They're both weary. They're both worn out, uh, battle weary. And we pray, Lord, that during this time of refreshment that you would renew their hearts, that you would give them the rest that is promised in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would renew their hearts and bring them refreshment so that they might return to serving you with strength and vigor that comes from you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We also want to thank you for your partnership in the gospel. It would not be possible for us as a church to support them with prayers, but also through financial contributions if you yourselves did not contribute. And so we want to thank you and encourage you to give your tithes and your offerings so that you partner with us and with those who are field staff. Uh, You can do that one of three ways, online at graceb3.org, bachelor's give. You can text uh, to the number 84321, any amount that you choose, or you can give the old-fashioned way, we have boxes in the back of the sanctuary. But want to encourage you to, to be faithful that way and thank you for those 
who are. We're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. We're winding down. We've got a couple chapters left. And, and the theme here in Hebrews is how do we hold fast? The author of Hebrews again and again and again keeps exhorting the readers, hold fast to your faith. And I want to open the sermon with a question. Have you ever wanted to quit something? That's a, that's a resounding yes. First service, I asked that question and there was laughter and I said, well, okay, just, let's just for crowd participation here, um, how many of you, raise your hand, if you at some point in time in your life have considered quitting something? I just, I just want to quit. And that's normal. That's, that's normal. And when we start most things, when we start most things, metaphorically, we line up the starting, starting line and, the, and, and the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the official fires the gun and we set out. That, that race adrenaline is there. Where whatever it is, you start out in your relationship. You get married. You start out a new job. You, you set a goal for yourself. I want to achieve this. I want to do great things for Jesus. I want to raise a, a family that loves the Lord. I, I want to do X. I want to do Y. And so we, the gun goes off, and we're just excited about what it is we're entering into, what it is we're entering into. And then we run for a while, and then lactic acid begins to build up. Now, for those of you that physiologically know something about exercise, Lactic acid is, is the product that your the waste product your body produces. That's what you feel when your muscles start to burn. And at that point, you start to fatigue. And at that point, you start to think to yourself, why did I want to do this again? And though your, your thoughts start to go, though, and now you're looking for an off-ramp. You want to keep going, but you start to want to quit. And eventually, eventually, because the mind tires before the body does, you say, I'm done. I'm done with this relationship. I'm done with this job. I'm throwing aside this particular goal. And sometimes even, I'm done with God. I'm done with God. Vince Lombardi, famous Green Bay Packers coach, whom the Lombardi Trophy is his, his namesake for the uh, Super Bowl trophy every year, said a very famous quote, and many of you have probably heard it. It's, it's simply this, fatigue makes cowards of us all. That's true in athletics. It's also true in life. It's also true in life. So this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 12, the author starts out with Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, see chapter 11, what we looked at last week, the Hebrews Hall of Faith, all of those people who have run before us. Since we have so many great examples of endurance, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with, what's the word? Endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Now, here's the problem. There's not one single solitary person here who was born with endurance. That's true physically in that when we came into this world naked, bawling, crying, we had no physical strength. We couldn't hold our heads up and we had to develop physical strength. We had to develop the strength and the coordination to walk, to crawl, to run. And you're not born with physical endurance. No one is. 
in a spiritual sense, when you and I were born again into the kingdom, receiving the forgiveness of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, which guarantees our redemption when he returns. And yet, we need to grow. Endurance is not natural. It is supernatural. So we are going to look at endurance this morning. Three things that we're going to see in the text, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Something we need to lose, something we have to gain, and how to do both. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you endured, scorning the shame of the cross and you are seated at the right hand of the Father. Thank you that you have conquered sin, you have conquered death. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring your word. And as we open up Hebrews chapter 12, Father, would you speak to us through your word that we might come to faith and endure in our faith. Lord, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it apart from you. So, Spirit, we ask that you would exalt Christ this morning and teach us, Lord, to put one foot in front of the other that we might endure in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first of all, let's take a look at what do we need to lose. The short answer to that is whatever holds us back. So before we open up the scripture, just take some time this morning and think to yourself, what holds me back from following hard after Christ? Now for some of you, either here live uh, in person or online, you haven't begun running the race yet. You have not started to follow Christ. So something's holding you back, and it's probably different for each person. So what do we need to lose? Let's take a look at the text. The author says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, again, referring to everything that came before in Hebrews chapter 11, where he talked about Abel and Abraham and Noah and and all of those different heroes of the faith who were very broken and fallible people just like you and me, but they endured. They endured. They held fast to the promise. So since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, since we have such great examples, let us also, let us also, connecting us to what they did, so in likewise, in similar manner, let us also lay aside two things. Number one, every weight. Number one, every weight. And sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's marked before us. Now, the author here is using an athletic metaphor. The people in in his day understood competition the same way we do. They had the Isthmian Games, which was in Corinth. They had the Olympic Games, which was in in Athens. So people in that day were, were just as tuned in to competitive sports as we are. And so this is a metaphor that, I'll say it, it preaches well. People get it. Oh, he's talking about, he's not talking about running, literally, but he's talking about life, and this is how this works. So when you watch the Tokyo Olympics this week, or this week, this summer, and you see the athletes, uh, especially the track athletes, those who are running, whether they are running the, their sprinters or whether they're long distance, you'll notice that they're all really thin. You don't see anyone that's overweight. Now, this will date many of you, but just for fun, how many of you remember when Saturday Night Live first started in the 70s? You remember Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and and Belushi, Gildner, Radner, there was a, a, a play on the Wheaties commercial after the 76 Olympics. And it, it, in, this, in this SNL skit, it had John Belushi. John Belushi was probably about 5'8", maybe 230 pounds. Okay? Uh, he was 
he was a little bit on the pudgy side. And so in this particular commercial, it wasn't, it wasn't for Wheaties. It was for Little Chocolate Donuts, the Breakfast of Champions. And they showed all these different clips of Belushi running the 100-yard dash, blowing away these, these elite athletes, doing a pole vault, and going up and over the bar. And this little short, fat guy was just blowing all these elite athletes away. And then, and then they turn, and the camera shows him at a, at, a, at a table with a box of little chocolate donuts at the Breakfast of Champions. And he says, I owe it all to little chocolate donuts. Now, that's absurd, and it's funny because it's absurd, because you know that's not reality. That's not reality. The word that's translated every weight, uh, the Greek word means bulk, mass, swelling. And I love this phrase, Suplurifus flesh. What does that mean? It means fat. Okay? It means an abundance of flesh. If you're going to be an elite athlete that's going to endure, marathon runners from Kenya don't have suplurifus flesh. They're, they're lean people. And they are built lean and they became lean because they developed endurance. So now, that's, of course, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, and maybe God does want you to shed a few pounds because it's harming your health, and you, you can't serve the Lord and, and glorify him if, if, if your health is in decline because of poor living. So that might be it, but that's not what the author's talking about. It is a metaphor. It's talking about non-sin issues which impede your progress. Now, it's, how do we know it's not sin issues? Because that's the second point. So this isn't things which are inherently sinful, For example, your job is not inherently sinful. Money is not inherently sinful. But Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money at the same time, for you'll love the one and hate the other. In other words, if there is something you love more than Christ, that something will hinder you. It will weigh you down. That's why Jesus said, You cannot love your mother, brother, father, sister, or relatives more than me. You must hate them in comparison to your love for me. Now, that's a hard teaching. What is he saying? If you love them more than you love me, you won't endure. If you were here last week and you saw the the seven questions that the Chinese house church uh, pastors asked the people that they baptized, what was the first one? Do you remember? Are you willing to forsake the approval of your father. Now, that isn't an issue for many of you, but what, what they're talking about, what this is talking about, is anything which hinders you following Jesus, you should forsake it. Now, some of you are not married, but you're dating someone who doesn't love Jesus. They, are in, they, they might impede your following Christ. And so Jesus is saying, pick one, him or me. Her or me? He said, oh, that's hard. Yeah, it is hard. But so is losing weight. That, that's the point. This, whatever, and I don't know what it is. I don't know your circumstances, but the, if you ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, Father Spirit, show me, show me the things which are not sinful, which might be hindering my walk with you. He will be faithful and he will show you. So let us lay every side, every weight. And... And what's the second thing here? And the sin which so clings so closely. Now, these are things which are, are clearly the Lord prohibits. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, the apostle John says, you can't walk in the light and darkness simultaneously. For some in the body of Christ, for many, perhaps you, there is some sin you will not forsake. 
It's something that you keep going back to, you keep giving yourself to. It's the secret little sin that you, you don't tell anybody about or everyone else knows it but you. Uh, it could be lust, it could be, could be pride, it could be bitterness, it could be you need to forgive someone or you, you need to be reconciled with someone, any, any number of things. I don't know, but these are things which are cut and dry. And yet, you presume upon the grace of God and what the author is saying is you, you can't run with endurance. John says you can't, you can't walk in light and darkness at the same time. Now, there's good news because later in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins to the Lord, he's faithful and just to forgive and purify, purify us from all unrighteousness. So you don't, you don't need to redeem yourself. You don't need to atone. You just need to open up and say, Lord, I confess this to you. I forsake this. Give me the grace to step out in obedience. So the author says two things, two things. Cast aside, lay aside every weight and every sin. So, simple. Lose weight, stop sinning. Let's close in prayer and we shall be dismissed. Is it really that simple? It is not that simple. When I came to the University of Iowa uh, as a freshman in 1985, I entered a wrestling community that was literally a great cloud of witnesses. When you walk into the Iowa Wrestling Room and you see all the pictures of the national champions and all the, the dozens and dozens and dozens of All-Americans and the number of world medalists and the Olympic champions, it, you're kind of in awe. These, these are individuals who have gone before me back in 1985, and I wanted to, I wanted to follow in their footsteps. So in a, in a sense, it's like I want to I run the race because of this great cloud. I want to be like them, right? So I remember my freshman year, 1985, talking to a guy who was one year ahead of me. His name was Charlie. And Charlie was telling me about an experience he had uh, after the tournament in Madison, Wisconsin, early in the season. And they were on the way back from the tournament, and they stopped at McDonald's, and they're all getting their food, and, and they're in line. And so in line with him was one of those legends of the sport, Eddie Bannock. Eddie Bannock was a four-time finalist. He won nationals three times, and the time he didn't win, he took second. And then he went on to win the 1984 gold medal in Los Angeles. And so Eddie Bannock is standing next to Charlie, and Charlie didn't do so well at the tournament. He looked at Charlie and says, Charlie, two things. You're weak and you're slow. Two fries, please. <laughs> Accurate diagnosis not terribly helpful. Now, in Eddie's defense, uh, the, it wasn't over there. It was, now we get back into the wrestling room and he's going to help this, this young man become stronger and, be, well, quicker is another thing, but become stronger, right? So, so but, but it's not as simple as just say, well, you know, stop sinning and lay aside the things which, which hinder you. That's really easy to say. It's really easy to diagnose. And, and that's what the author does in verse 1. Now, what he does in the rest of the chapter, verses 2, or the re- rest of the, the section we're going to cover this morning, verses 2 through 17, he says, okay, here's how you do those two things. So you need to do these two things. Lay aside every weight that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles or clings so closely. And, and, and here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. So let's take a look at what what it is we need to gain. So what do we need to put on? So we put off something. 
What do we need to put on? And in short, what we're going to see is what we need to gain is a new perspective on suffering, a new perspective on suffering. If you allow the Holy Spirit to do this in you, it will develop in each one of you, regardless how spiritually out of shape you are, it will develop endurance. It will develop endurance. So let's take a look. Verse 2 and 3. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So there are five things we're going to look at in these next verses that we want to realize or remember. Realize or remember. The first, we need to realize and remember that the Son, Jesus Christ, was made perfect through suffering. So the author has said, okay, look to Jesus. If you have an NIV, it says, set your eyes, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, who is the profounder and the perfecter of our faith. All right, verse three, it says, consider him. In other words, use your cognitive thinking skills and put your mind's eye on the persons of Jesus and think about him. What, what are we supposed to think about him? that he endured from sinners such hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the strength and the source of our endurance is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what the author here is doing is saying, you need to consider him. No one likes to suffer. No one likes pain. Everyone wants to consider or quit and quit when they experience suffering and pain. And we need to look to Jesus who himself suffered, who himself had to endure and was perfected. Two texts. First of all, turn backwards in Ephes- or rather Hebrews chapter 5. Let's take a look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that is Jesus, in bringing many sons, that is us, to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let that sink in for a moment. What is the author saying? Jesus was born in a manger to a teenage Jewish girl. He had to nurse at her breasts and he needed his diapers changed. He had to grow and be strengthened the same way you and I do. And the father subjected him to suffering in that he was made a perfect sacrifice. Why, pray tell... Do we as followers of Christ think that if we suffer, somehow God doesn't love us? And yet that's oftentimes what we ask. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we remember we realize that the Son was made perfect through suffering, we can look at our, perspe- our suffering with a different perspective. So that's the first thing. Consider that the Son was made perfect through suffering. Verse 4 and 6, in your struggle against sin, 
You've not resisted the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Then he quotes, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now go back to verse 5, the first phrase. Have you forgotten? Why do you suppose he asked that question? Because we forget. We do forget. Have you forgotten the exhortation? We need to remember, we need to realize that when we experience hardship, at that moment of pain, at that moment of hardship, the father is treating you as he treated his son. As he treated his son. As he, you, whether you're, Adopted daughter or adopted son, God is treating you as sons. Now look at the last part here. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines, disciplines the one he loves. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the... That word discipline appears 11 times in the scriptures that we're covering. That that word discipline, it, uh, it means training or instruction. It means training or instruction. It's not referring to a disciplined person. So if you, if you refer to someone, oh, you know, Jim, he is really disciplined. What do you mean by that? You mean that that person exercises self-control in everything they do. They deny themselves pleasures that, they, that other people don't, because they're, uh, they're training for some purpose. They have a goal and they cast aside everything that hinders and, and they live a particular lifestyle which, which affords them the most likelihood of success in whatever it is they're pursuing, right? That's what we mean by discipline, person. That's not what he's talking about. They are related. This is regarding the discipline of the Lord. This is something imposed upon us. So this isn't being self-controlled, but it leads to self-control. This is a training regimen. This is a training regimen. This is instruction. Let me tell you something else that it's not referring to. And oftentimes we confuse this. When we think of the discipline of the Lord, we think punitive, as in punishment. Discipline and punishment are related, but they are not the same things. If a person, if, I, if you drive past Liberty High on Dubuque Street, doing 100, when school's in session, and you're pulled over, you will be punitively fined and you will be punished. That's not for your good. That's so justice would be filled. Justice would be done. So justice, when, when, when punishment is doled out, it is for the offended, not the offender. So justice is on. You pay your fine. You serve your time. You are punished. That's punitive. That has to do with satisfying the offended party, right? That's punitive. Discipline might be painful as well. Punishment can be painful. Discipline can be painful, but the objective is totally different. See, discipline is restorative. It's not for the offended. It's for the the offender. Discipline is what the father does to, to, and uses to, to, to change us, to mold us, to make us to what he created us to be. And yes, it hurts. It does hurt. 
But the purpose is altogether different. Because Jesus has taken our punishment, the justice of God has been satisfied in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Because of that, you who are in Christ can never and will never be punished. Ever. Period. It does not mean that you won't suffer the consequences of your sin. You make foolish choices. You will receive discipline, which hurts, and it's reformative and corrective in nature, but it's not punishment. Does that make sense? It's crucial that we get a hold of what discipline is not. So discipline, God disciplines those he loves. Now let's take a look at verse 7 and 9. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which we all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we all have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? So here the author is he's shifting away from the athletic metaphor to familial metaphor. So all of us were raised in homes, good homes, not so good homes. It's just degrees of dysfunction, right? And he says, now, even those fathers, they loved you, they did their best, and they disciplined you. If they didn't dis- discipline you at all, it would be an indication that they didn't love you. Now, the implication here, it's insinuated that they did their best, and they didn't always do it right. But their motive... Their motive was for our good. Yes? So back to the the metaphor of competition. My junior year, I had had undergone knee surgery over the summer and was immobilized for quite some time. And and so when I entered the season the next year, I was a tad on the heavy side. Uh, I used to wrestle 190, which is not my natural weight. I had to cut a lot of weight to get there. And I, at the beginning of the season, was not... I was pulling too much weight. That's a wrestling phrase for I was losing too much weight over a short period of time, water weight, to to weigh in. And that takes a toll on on a competitor. So we were out and we wrestled Lehigh, we wrestled Penn State. And both of these matches, I was wrestling guys who were all Americans. And on both of these matches, I was up in score going into the third period. And then I gassed which is a term for became fatigued. And according to Vince Lombardi, I became a coward. And I lost both of those matches. I physically was not able to endure. And those guys ro- rolled up the, they, they overcame the point deficit and they won. So we get back to Iowa City and Coach Gable says, um, I'm going to pick you up at your apartment, six in the morning, have your running shoes on. So next day I, come outside and he's there in his station wagon and I hop in and he drives me to the edge of Coralville, which is First Avenue. It was all gravel back then. First Avenue extension was not, uh, was not paved. And, and he said, get out. So I got out, he shut the door, rolled the window down and he said, okay, just run. He turned the radio on and so I'm running. You don't ask the question, but you think it. I wonder how long. So just running, and so all of a sudden I see the, the tower in North Liberty. Well, I've never been here. <laughs> so just running along, and eventually I got back in. 
This happened every day for two weeks. I learned late. He never told me. He never said, oh, here's how far you ran. He just, it's just the way he is. Everything's a mystery with Gable. So I found out later, because I read it in a book that he wrote, it was 10 miles every time I ran. I didn't have a problem with weight anymore that year. It's just, the pounds just melted away. Just cast aside all that superfluous flesh. It was gone. And, and it was, endurance was not a problem for me the rest of the year. Now, did I enjoy that? Some of you are like, I don't know, are you masochist? No, I did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy it. I had to, this was above and beyond what everyone else was doing in the wrestling program. So I come back that afternoon already tired, already fatigued, and I was not doing well. I wasn't holding up well in practice. So at one point in time after practice, in the afternoon, the wrestling practice, I asked Gable, I said, do you think tomorrow I could, I could lift weights in, instead of run? And he's like, what are you, what are you? He, Gable gets all intense. He does this whole thing like this. And he's like, I'm the coach, I'm the coach. And I'm like, just kind of like, you know, like the dog that lays down and exposes its belly, you know, because the alpha male. So I submitted myself. Now, I could look at that. And if I didn't understand why he was doing it, I could think, he hates me. He singled me out. He's not making anyone else run extra. This is, a, this is evidence that he hates me. Is that true? It's evidence that he sees a weakness in me that he wants to apply a specific form of discipline so that that weakness is no longer a weakness but becomes a strength because he cares. Because he wants to see me success. Now, if I lose sight of that perspective and I don't understand the purpose for which I am being undergoing discipline, I will not endure. I will not endure. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. I've been in practice. I've been in the wrestling room where an All-American has literally walked out of the room never to return, forfeiting their scholarship because they can't take it anymore. I've seen it happen. And I've seen it happen in life. I've seen couples stand up here and give their lives to one another who walk away from one another. I've seen people and discipled people who have walked away from Jesus. They didn't start out the race thinking they were going to quit. But when the pressure got intense, they assumed God did not love them and they walked away because they didn't want to be in a position of pain anymore. And by the way, nobody wants to be in a position of pain. That's what the author is telling us. You've got to have perspective. We have to have perspective here. Verse 10. For they disciplined us, our fathers, for a short time, as they saw best. But he that is the father, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So there's the purpose. He gives it to us. He says, do you want to know why you're suffering? It's so God can use that suffering, whatever it is, whatever form it comes in, as a means by which the potter can shape you and mold you and make you share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You think? 
When you're put on an anvil and the hammer drops, it hurts. When you're taken off of the anvil and thrust into the fire and the fire is stoked, it hurts. And then anvil, fire, anvil, fire, anvil, fire. All of that, if you're a slag of metal, isn't pleasant. But the blacksmith is shaping us and molding us into a saber, a sword, useful in the hands of the Lord. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Know the purpose for which you're undergoing discipline. It's not punishment. It's formative. It's not punishment. It is formative. Now let's take a look at a transitionary text. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may be put out of joint, but rather is healed. Stride for peace with everyone. Now there's a shift here. The focus has been pretty much vertical, how you relate to the Lord. Now it shifts how we relate to one another. Strive for peace with everyone, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now this isn't talking about you not obtaining. You're to look out for others so that they don't fail to obtain the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it defiles many. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. There's a transition here from this latter portion of the text where now he is saying, you need to take your eyes, keep them fixed on Jesus, but recognize that you're not running the race alone. Principle, you cannot train alone. Strike that, that's totally false. If you want to, you can train alone, but you will never develop endurance without your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to win in a competitive endeavor, you must surround yourself by a great cloud of witnesses who know what they're doing, who have run before you, and who are living now, who will run beside you, behind you, and in front of you, so that they will encourage you and come alongside you. In this era where COVID is kind of, is kind of waning, and God willing will be gone, There are many people, and some of them I love very dearly, had a conversation with someone in my community group who said, you know what? This whole year, watching service online has been pretty nice. It's going to be hard to come back. I wouldn't know. I can't sit in my pajamas and drink coffee and preach, but those, there are a lot of people who have because of necessity. And, And here's the deal. He said, well, why can't I just watch online? Why can't I got, you know, I got John Piper, I got Matt Chandler, you know, you're way down here, they're way up here, but I got all these awesome Bible teachers, I can just tune in. You can tune in all you want, but you cannot run the race and develop endurance alone. You need to be beside people who know you, who will encourage you, who will come alongside you when you don't 
want to remember that the father disciplines as, as us his sons. You need someone to come alongside you and remind you that God still does love you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering. And they need you. That's why the author of Hebrews says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses in the past that went before us, in the present that are right beside us, and in the future that will come after us. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but continue to meet together all the more so as you see the day of his return approaching. Encourage one another. Anyone who, in a metaphorical sense, competes athletically, they never train alone if they want to be any good. They surround themselves by brothers and sisters who are excellent in their craft, in their discipline. And they want to learn from them. And they they want to be held accountable. And they want to be encouraged. He's talking about community here. Okay, so we know what we need to cast off. The weight and the sin. We know what we need. We need to consider him who went before us. We need to consider that the Lord is disciplining us for our good, for our instruction, and to the end that we would be made holy, and we need to remember that we need one another. But how do we do it? How do we lose what holds us back? We don't want to be standing in line and saying, you know what, you're fat and you're slow, so stop it. Because that might be true. That might be true, spiritually speaking. So how do we lose what holds us back and gain a new perspective on suffering? That's where Jesus comes in. So full circle, back to verse 2 and 3. Let us lay aside every weight that hinders and the sin that clings so closely and let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we're going to close the service by remembering, by remembering what the Lord Jesus did in communion. So if you came in this, this morning and you did not, you did not get one of, these, uh, one of these containers, which I will say are quite convenient and awful at the same time, I think these have a shelf life of 50,000 years. So if Jesus... His return is delayed. We're good to go with communion. In all seriousness, if you're, if you're watching online, this is your opportunity to grab these. If you do not have one of these, raise your hand and the ushers will bring you, bring you one. So hold your hands up so they can see. I have some people over here. And uh, so, yeah, take those out. Now, this is a trick. You pull the cellophane off to release the bread-like substance. Then there's a second layer of cellophane that you take off. For the juice. There we go. Okay. As the ushers are passing those out and you're finagling with your container. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed... He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he lifted that cup up. And he says, this, this cup is the, is, it's the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood, which is being shed for you. As often 
Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as you meet and, and you gather, I want you to take this bread and I want you to take this cup and I want you to remember Jesus endured for you. I want you to remember that when he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, he did it so that he might pass that merit on to you. And I want you to remember that that sin that clings so closely, that weighs you down, he bore that on his shoulders. And the Father's wrath was poured out on him so that you would never experience punitive justice. And I want you to remember that as the Father loved the Son, He loves you with the same intensity. And whatever you're going through right now, be it a broken relationship, a child that's run off away from the Lord, or shattered dreams, or broken health, the Father loves you desperately. He can't love you anymore. He will never love you less. So fix your eyes on Christ, who is our author of our faith and our perfecter. And let's remember him together. Father, we thank you for your life that you gave in your son, for the righteousness that he accomplished by his obedience to the law, by submitting himself to you and taking our sin. We eat this bread in remembrance of him and we drink this juice in remembrance of the blood that he shed. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to end the service a little bit differently this morning. This is the part where I pray and say, go in grace, but I'm going to ask you to stand before you go because God called us to go and to make disciples of all nations. Having looked to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, it's time to stand and it's time to run. It's time to go. It's time to do. It's time to speak. It's time to serve. It's time to love. So let's close the service in prayer this morning and then let's run. Let's run for his glory for his honor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given. We thank you that you endured all so that we could run. Lord, we need you. We need one another. And Lord, the world needs the gospel. And you've entrusted to us that gospel. Lord, there's a world out there that needs you. And Father, we here in this room, we have the truth. And we're broken and we're flawed and we're afraid but you've called us to make disciples. So give us the grace and the strength to run well, to love well, and to speak your truth that Christ might be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in grace, and we will see you next week.